Hey everybody, welcome to Artifice episode 29. I just wanted to take a second and point out if you haven't noticed it already, Artifice has a new logo. Um, it's designed by Sarah Keel. So um, maybe you guys will remember, I interviewed Sarah back in the teens. I can't remember exactly. It was maybe like 13, 14. Um, and after I had interviewed Sarah, I, I, but well, okay. So before I interviewed Sarah, I had this idea to make uh, a print or like a like a fabric, a, a print um, of art objects, like all these little objects that uh, represent kind of the, all the mediums that I love and that I try to feature here, and that you know like represent the arts. Um, and so after I met Sarah, I had her, I hired her to do that, um, and it's finished, which I'm super excited about. Stay tuned in the ad segment. Here's a little preview for more information about in what ways you might be able to bring this print into your home. Uh, but then I just wanted to share one other kind of like cool meta thing that happened uh, with the podcast. So uh, last weekend I was playing, or maybe it was two weekends ago. Anyway, I was playing a wedding at this venue and I just kept thinking like, oh my gosh, this building is so amazing and so gorgeous. Um, and then like a few days later, I was editing episode 27, which is Clayton Vance's episode. And as I was looking through his website, I realized he built that building. So that was kind of, that was meta. I was like playing a gig in this building that was built by my guest from episode 27. And then the, the person who made the cake for that wedding was Cassidy Harrison, who was featured in episode 26. So, you know, I, one of my goals when I was starting this podcast was just to like get to know my art, my art community, um, connect with more artists, hire more artists, and all of those things are coming true. And I'm super pumped about it. Um, speaking of also like another layer, layer of meta, my guest for today's episode, a Miss Christine Baird, is someone who I met year, like uh, literally a decade ago, um, more than a decade ago in Texas. Um, and she wasn't like a professional artist back then. And now Christine is here in Utah and we've reconnected and she's doing awesome stuff with art and the arts now. Um, so, you know, it's just like all these connections, you know, I feel like it's one of those like, uh, CSI like board things where it's like, oh, I see all the connections coming together. Anyway, let me tell you a little bit about Christine. Christine Baird did a career 180 when she moved from the corporate world to focus on podcasting, event production, social media strategy, and influencer branding. She developed Lewis Howe's brand, The School of Greatness, for four years, during which time the podcast downloads increased from 1 million to over 80 million. She now helps influencers launch and strategize their shows. She also produces her own self-development podcast, The Worthful Project. She's passionate about coming the best, becoming the best version of herself and inspiring others to do the same. And you guys, Christine really practices what she preaches. She's awesome. She wants you to be awesome. Um, I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Here comes Christine Baird. Sometimes art feels like magic, pure, visionary. And sometimes it's brought to you in part by focus groups and algorithms. And the makers of art are no different. We're creatives, sure, but we're also salespeople. We need imagination and imitation. We need deep, meaningful connections, but we also have to network. Yep, even if you're an introvert. And that's my point. 
Balancing vulnerability with veneer is tricky, and it's a struggle we don't often share. So let's share. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Today's episode of Artifice is brought to you by, well, no one, because today I'm using this segment to share the news that Artifice Podcast has merch. Our very own Artifice print is currently available in the form of gift wrapping paper in black and white, as well as holiday edition colors, 17 ounce tall latte mugs, PS, those are my favorite, they are so pretty, sticker sheets, and tote bags. If you haven't seen it yet, the print is 15 art objects to represent all of the art mediums we love. And I genuinely could not be more excited about it. Head to emvocals.com slash store to check it out and stay tuned for some sales and deals coming soon. Yeah, also, yeah. or it's just one of those things where it's like hearing your voice, like you're hearing it like in the world. Yeah. Because they're not like noise canceling. Actually, you're right. I think it's I'm hearing... That. I'm hearing it through here and my real and ears. your actual ears. <laughs> my real ears. My real ears and my enhanced headphone ears. <laughs> but yeah, I sometimes I feel like I I get the sense like, you know, 20 or 30 minutes into an interview, like I have not set up a good like yeah. vibe with this person. Like it, I like I've accidentally said something that yes. like is totally misunderstanding or I've misread like yeah. their vibe. Um, and then I get... I get very nervous. I don't, I think, I think everyone I've interviewed has had a good experience, but I kind of have feel like maybe you could have had a better experience. Well, that's the whole trick is like, I think, you know, being an empath or being able to read energy, I'm always on a few different wavelengths. And so often it comes out later that the person was like, that was the most amazing thing or what you yeah. said really impacted me. And I was over here just like, totally. Oh, I was just like thinking about 10 different things and, you know, kind of in my own space and had no idea that you were having a profound experience. Oh, that happens to me like every Yeah. Day. Is that better? Yes. Okay. I just turned you up a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe I just am like, no, I want more. I just need a little more. I need a little Christine. more of me. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've had that experience too, where like someone will leave and I kind of have a pit in my stomach, like, and then they'll email me like the next day and be like, that was so much fun. I've like never had an interview yes. I liked better. <laughs> and I think to, to your point, like sometimes people aren't used to the kind of intimacy that we create. Yes. And so they might be having a new experience with us yeah. and th that may be why they're like in their own little world. Totally. And then later they're like, oh, I really liked that. This was, okay, so this was like something I've always remembered to take notes on. Once upon a time, Elizabeth Smart came on the podcast, not my podcast, but the podcast I was working on. And I obviously knew a lot, but I had tried to prep my client and he had like not been available. And I was kind of already mad at him because like he was running late and I hadn't been able to prep him properly. I'd done all the prep work and she had gotten there early anyway. So I was already kind of like trying in two minutes to prep him for like an hour long interview and explained to him. I had already told him about her story, but I was like, don't ask her all the questions that most people have asked her. She's literally been interviewed thousands yeah. of times about being yeah. kidnapped. So I had this whole other idea Oof. about, cause her new book, she was on book tour for a new book. It was about hope. And I was like, why don't we go in this other direction? Yeah. He was like distracted and not paying attention. So like, 10 minutes into the interview, oh he's like gone through all the questions because he wasn't, 
it, I'm not blaming him. Like yeah. he just had a lot on his mind. So he hadn't been very present. So he wasn't really like engaging very well. Yeah. And she was like having a normal press day. She'd already done like three interviews. This was just oh another one on the list. Yeah. Her publisher had set up. It wasn't like she had any connection to the show. So he of course goes for like the easy low hanging fruit and yeah. starts asking about the kid, which of course she like can handle no problem. But he's the type to like go where no one's gone before. Mm-hmm. And he, unbeknownst to her, because he hadn't warmed her up very much, he'd yeah. been sexually abused as a kid, but she didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So he starts asking her these questions about, well, if we're talking about forgiveness and hope, like, can we talk about forgiveness and hope for your molester? And she yeah. didn't know his come from because she didn't know his right. history. He's also an abuse survivor. And oh it got tense real really quick. quickly. <laughs> and I just was sitting in the corner like, you dug your own grave, brother. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not bailing you out of this. Like, yeah. I tried. So there was this moment of like palpable tension where she thought what he meant was like everybody makes mistakes. And she was like, it's not a mistake when an adult like sexually abuses a kid. And then he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, just so you know, like I was also abused as a kid. And they like, then it was a whole different conversation. Then it like opened. So we finished the interview and I was like, me thinking like that was real touch and go for a minute. Like yeah. I wouldn't be not that I was worried because I chatted, we chatted for a while after she was really cool, but I was kind of like, that was a crap interview. Yeah. Like you didn't do prep. You didn't like prep. you didn't like go where you could have gone. Like you went into this weird tense place. The next day she emails me. Cause I'd been on the thread. He hadn't with like a publisher. She's like, I just wanted to mention that like that was one of those interesting and thought provoking, powerful interviews I've ever done. Wow. And I've really been thinking about the medium of podcasting. And I was like, because it yeah. really was unlike in an interview she'd done, right. they did talk about things that she didn't usually get asked. Yeah. And she did have like an experience and it was such a good note for me to be like, you never know you don't. what someone else is experiencing. And yeah, we all felt the tension in the room for the moment, but I didn't realize that she found value in yeah. being challenged yeah. by another survivor to be like, yeah, do you have it in, like, what does it look like to have hope as in a molester? Yeah. That's why, like, one thing I've been struggling with, like, recently, we can talk about this more later, too, is, like, you know, when you want to ask, like, a certain type of question that, like, in the, in, um, in the process of, like, asking the question, you can't help but like sort of limit the answer um and and not that it's like specifically a leading question but like it's just so broad that like and I really like we'll we'll get there okay I have I have like a specific thing that's like it's hard to talk about um okay let's like officially start let's officially start I might keep all of that in that's fine we'll see I love keeping the mic on you never know what good stuff comes up yes I'm so about it so I like to always start with everybody in the very beginning of what were you like as a child? What was the first creativity that you got into as baby Christine? Oh, this is so fun. Okay. No one's ever asked me, but I have a good story. Okay. Tell it. So as a child, I was shy and very emotionally aware and I just had two older brothers. So I spent a lot of time playing by myself, dress ups and Barbies and make believe. Okay. And I also played with my brothers, but you know, there's only so much time that you can tomboy it. And then I was actually very feminine. And so I would (laughs) spend a lot of alone time playing Barbies and dress ups, but I had this really vivid imagination. And so I could literally for hours on end entertain myself 
And then the story that always comes to mind when I think about my original creativity, and this was also like a moment I've gone over in therapy many times and bless my mother, like the best of intentions. So it's all a big package. But I remember, I think it was third grade, maybe second. And I had a little assignment at school to write a story. So this was kind of my first official writing assignment ever, at least that I remember. Great. And I was so excited because little Christine yeah. had so much like imagination. All these ideas. I love to read. My parents were very conservative, so there was no TV in the house. Okay. Like all we did was read books for entertainment and like, you know, play outside, play outside yeah. which was great. Climb trees. Now I'm like, that was amazing. And at the time, I don't know that I really cared. Anyway, so I'd read a lot of books. I thought reading and writing was cool. I had this assignment to write a story. So I wrote a one page, like handwritten, right? And it was about a duck. And I can't tell you anything <laughs> else about the story except I remember it was about a duck. And I think I typed it too, meaning, you know, like the little two finger yeah. typing because yeah. I was in third grade. And they didn't, we didn't have like typing classes no. back then in school. But I remember when you had computer class in like uh -huh. middle school. Uh -huh. Oh man, how the world's changed. I know. So I typed it up probably using my two little index fingers, very official, very much <laughs> feeling like grown up, cool. Yeah. I have my first story and I gave it to my mom, very excited and proud to show her the results of my labor and imagination and me thinking it was amazing. And my sweet mother was an English teacher professionally before she kind of became a full-time mom and decided to channel her energies into that. And so grammar was huge in our house and she very lovingly wanted me to know good grammar. So in her, this is me after years of therapy, right? In her best intentions, she took my little typed paper and got out a red pen and promptly like corrected all the grammar mistakes yeah. and, you know, probably syntax. Because in her very well-intentioned way, she was, like, helping me be better. And, like, little Christine just really took that the wrong way. Yeah, heartbroken. Heartbroken. I'm not good enough. You know, oh, no. this just the <laughs> origins of the therapy sessions, right? Right down to, like, so it's so fun that you asked that because I think that's the story that always comes to mind of, like, original creativity besides playing dress-ups, which truly was I mean a lot of my guests say really? something like that yeah a lot of them will say like that. I played pretend I played pretend so much yeah elaborate storylines yeah. multiple costume changes yeah me being and I had little you know friends little girlfriends that I would play with too but I remember vividly like the hours of by myself make -believe. It's the very beginning of your your storytelling. I mean, yes. you know, I talk about this with, a lot with people too, you know, because I'm I'm interested in like the origins of creativity and you know, like what is it? Where does it come from? What happens to it? Um and I think that, you know, some kids are lucky enough to have um, you know, resources. Like, I mean, and that could be as simple as like you have colored pencils in the house. Or it could be, you know, you have a piano in the house or it could be like your mom and dad, mom or dad or whoever are filmmakers and you have like, you have access to like sets, you know, when you're getting that exposure as a child. So, you know, if you are a child who either doesn't have that stuff or, you know, whatever, like sometimes like the resource you have is just like your brain, which is why I think so many people say like, as just pretending stuff as creating storylines. And even to that point, and I have an 
ever actually given that part of myself credit for being the foundation of my creativity. I think it was in a way so powerful to start my creative expression that way because there's so few limits when it's your brain and a few props versus if I had grown up around parents who were musicians or filmmakers or maybe we were on photography sets or in art studios, maybe I would have channeled or limited myself to those Mm -hmm. mediums. Not that that would have been good or bad. It just would have been different. But I think because I had like a box of dress ups and some Barbies and that was it. Like clearly I early on decided what kind of stories I like. Like I really honed in on my favorite. There are always love stories, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a real romantic. Um, I, I meant to say at the beginning, I should tell the listeners how, we, we should say how we know we sh- each other because it's so weird. It is. Um, so Christine lives in Utah now. And like a lot of my guests that I've interviewed so far live in Utah, although I'm sort of planning on doing some traveling shows recent- soon. I'm Not so recently. excited to hear Do you about get that? confused between like recently yes. and soon? Yes. And like prior and like subsequent? Yes. I have a problem with those things sometimes. Yeah. Um, I just think about it as proximity and not so much like which ones before or after. Anyway, so Christine and I met in Texas when I was in school and she was not in school. I was freshly out of school. She was freshly out of school. But it's weird because we met like through some mutual friends, I think. Right? Like, yeah. We didn't meet like You lived like 45 minutes away from me. Yeah. So we met through mutual friends. So we met through mutual friends. But like we are the only two people from this friend group. I mean, Christine's the only person from this friend group that I still talk to. (laughs) Truly. I mean, almost me too, I think. Yeah. And it's weird that like suddenly you've landed here in Utah and we live in the same place again. Um, And I also think you're a great like person for this podcast because like you have done several kinds of art and been in like close proximity to a lot of kinds of art and have this kind of like big picture creative that I am really interested in and that I think maybe in like art communities, we don't give enough voice to. I think in business communities, we talk more about this kind of like big picture creative, but in art communities, less so. So all this to say, I'm glad you're here in Utah. It's nice to like reconnect after all of these years. Uh, And like, it's nice to have you on my podcast. I am so thrilled, <laughs> literally thrilled to be here in Utah and on your show and in your home and to reconnect. I We've already talked about this, but the older I get, the more I value relationships that began when I was kind of no one slash mm-hmm. didn't even know who I was yet. Those are so valuable they to me. They are so weirdly valuable. Like to spend time with someone who like bore witness to like a version of you that kind of doesn't exist anymore. That's the best way to put it. Yeah. Because you met me when I was like early 20s selling insurance in a cubicle for 10 hours a day. And honestly, I think you might have met me when I was like 22, maybe. Yeah. How old are you now? 32. Yeah. I'm 31. And I it, it was definitely before Andrew and I met, which happened when I was 21. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was definitely a good decade, at least 10 years ago. Yeah. Maybe like maybe 11. It even. could easily. It was in that window. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I feel like, you know, you knew me at a time when like, I was not yet tired. 
the youthful days of like energy and quite partying. a bit like goofier <laughs> and like more spontaneous than I am now. Uh, nowadays, I feel like I really don't want anything to be spontaneous. I want to plan all the things. I mean, maybe I can spontaneously decide like what food to eat. So stretchy. <laughs> That's the and level of adventure that I'm into now in my 30s. <laughs> Not to tangent, but I wonder if there's a trend there because I've always thought I was a good spontaneous, like I love, enjoy spontaneity. And I like to think I still do. But as I get older, my planner side has really shown her true colors. Mm-hmm. And literally two days ago, my boyfriend and I had a growth conversation <laughs> about my tendency to plan and his um, resistance to planning. Mm. And it was great. And we really resolved everything within three hours, which I think was like a new record for us. Like from initial communication breakdown, me getting, you know, into tears and then us resolving (laughs) three hours flat. I was like, wow, we are getting so efficient at this. Yeah. But it was really, that's what the issue is not about making holiday plans. It was totally about me being a planner and him wanting to be spontaneous. Andrew and I have that as well. We have kind of like, um, We've kind of like evened out a little bit. I mean, every once in a while, there are still things where I'm like, you can't put this on me at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like family values. Like my family super plans and his family super doesn't. So sometimes it's kind of, but I, th- I think we've, we've landed in a place where we're both, you know, I'm much more relaxed. And Andrew is like, I see the benefit of planning. You can save money and time. And resources of all sorts. And that's the goal because I do think, especially if someone grew up in an environment where planning wasn't the norm, it's probably going to take a few years to yeah. shift that. So, And you don't even realize what you're missing if you no. never plan. <laughs> oh my gosh. And the, like within the three hour, you know, um, rem- what fight we- cycle, fight cycle, we'll call it. <laughs> we all came to the same conclusion very quickly. Planning is good. Yeah. Also... I could cool my jets and not buy the plane tickets right now because actually driving <laughs> makes sense. I could cool my jets is like probably something I should have on a shirt or like hanging on the wall some, somewhere. Just, oh yeah. Also, I could cool my jets. I could not plan this four months ahead right now. It's possible. I don't need to be having a panic attack about this particular thing as it is totally flexible, totally way far in the future. There are many options. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll find that t-shirt because I'm sure it already exists online. And then I I'll could send cool you my the jets. link. <laughs> FYI, about me, I could cool my jets. <laughs> in your profile, in your about me section. If I was also, still on I a, could cool my jets. If I was still on dating apps, I wish it probably, that would be a good liner. A one liner. Now, you always seem very calm to me. I do feel like a very calm person. As was revealed during this conversation the other day, my planner side is very subtle and it oftentimes is going on underneath the surface Mm. and it usually doesn't get revealed until there's a conflict in plans. I see. Because I'm very calm, but I'm also running about 20 scenarios in the future at all times in my head. Mm. Same. Which is fine if it's just my life, but when it involves someone else... Things get tricky. It turns out that I get to respect and honor that somebody else might have a different idea. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) I think it's also the truth. Considering it was the holiday plans with his family in his hometown that he's been to his whole life and I've never been to. 
Yeah, it is the truth. It's a nice way of putting it to yourself so that it's something palatable for you and you don't have to get your feelings so hurt about the fact that that is difficult yeah. for you. And it was great because I did get my feelings hurt and then resolved. And it was a good cycle. And I got a few tears out, which not to go on another tangent, but I really value tears now. I, I do too. Uh, it, yeah. I mean, I'm into tangent you one farther. Um, <laughs> when uh, when my mom was diagnosed with cancer and everything went into like a full on crisis, I got real comfy real quick with spontaneous public crying. And I feel like I could just smile and like order Chipotle right through it. You know, uh, that's a goal. I actually would love to live in a society where we all have that skill. Yeah, it was it kind of became inevitable. It was like I'm crying spontaneously frequently enough yeah. that like it's it's just a thing that I have to kind of like count on for yeah. these next few months and I have to go about my life so if that means like crying at Target crying at a restaurant crying in you know walking anywhere parking lots you know it's just a thing that's gonna happen and uh, you know it really like I feel like it like taught me some lessons about like being a human that I'm glad I learned amen I am still learning those lessons and that's why I appreciate crying so much. Yeah. And when I see other people public crying, it doesn't freak me out as much. Exactly. That yeah. I think is the true value is the empathy piece. Yeah. And I can go up and be like, are you okay? Also, I totally get public crying. So been there. How are you doing? Can I help? Or is this just one of those things that's like, listen, I know what the problem is. I'm just public crying. I'll be done soon. No cause for alarm. Which I, again, would like to live in that world yeah. where that's also normal. That <laughs> yeah, sounds I'm really totally nice. I'm totally fine. Just crying. Like, it's fine. Yeah. Thanks for checking on me. Because that's really kind. Yeah. And it's honoring their and, boundaries. But it's hard. It can be very awkward for both people. So, amen. Yeah. Okay. Take us back. To, I can't remember where we were, but take We us were back. back in your childhood. So, okay. okay. Now, I do know... I know a fair amount about what's been going on with you in the past 10 years, but I actually don't really know that much about how you went from a creative child to getting, selling health insurance. So can we just, can we go through like the creative milestones in your life? Like, let's say like until you're like about ready to go to college. Yes. Just what were, what did you try? What were you doing? What did you learn? Okay, there was the little writing project, third grade. I did a ton of reading, as mentioned. It was very influential. A lot of imagination time during reading time. Then um, I'm pretty sure when I was eight, I did a year of ballet. That needed to happen because I had a lot of fantasies, as most little girls do, about yes. being a ballerina. Lasted a year. I ended up with a blue cast on my arm during oh, my recital. No. It happens. I think another girl in my class also happened to have a cast on her arm during the recital. I, but it wasn't a dancing injury. No. It was a, it was a separate injury. It was okay. a rollerblading injury at my friend's birthday Kate, party. How come rollerblading isn't a thing anymore? Well, it's not a thing for me because <laughs> it turned out the first time I tried it, I broke my wrist. And years later when I was ice skating, I also broke my wrist. So skating is clearly not my forte. But I, I think I'm an anomaly and most people mm. were fine. And I'm not sure. But I will say this. I've... I like to, you know, run slash walk the park often mm. in the morning. And there's a few rollerbladers. Roller they still exist. And Good in the, on the boardwalk in Santa Monica and Venice, California, there's some strong rollerbladers going. Well, I appreciate this information. Thank you. Yeah, just <laughs> I'm putting it up like they exist and I've seen them within the last calendar year. 
Well, that is that is, I'm relieved. Yeah, I'm not the poster child, clearly. So so there's the so ballet. ballet. We did ballet. And then shortly after that, my mom, I think, to be honest, I probably went to my mom and said, I'd like to try piano. The details are foggy because I promptly fought her for four years mm-hmm. about me being in mm-hmm. piano. But she really stuck to it as a good mother good would. Good mom, yeah. Excellent mothering. As bratty as I was. Those were my bratty years. I had them pre-adolescent. Same. As my mom reminds me. She's like, you really had your emotional time. You were kind of a teenager from 8 to 12. 8 to 12. And then I was a very docile teenager. So I fought her pretty much every day for about five years over the piano lessons, which continued and were, of course, a wonderful gift. An introduction (laughs) to music, music theory, classical music, all my teachers were very focused on classical. I never really delved into anything else. So piano was a big part of the music education. And then when I was kind of in middle school and high school, I started to show my academic skills, Mm. meaning I was good at taking tests and reading and paying attention. Like, just, I think, honestly, out of like a genetic lottery. Yeah. So I just breezed through school. I think I'm like that too. And I really want to say it that way because I don't think I was smarter than anyone. I happen to have the skills that public education systems reward, totally. test taking, memorization, listening, and right. reading. And yes. And I think some of that is a temperament thing too. But yeah. And I, I would also imagine that just the simple fact that you had been reading a lot, like if, if reading is difficult for you, I can't even imagine, like if reading is kind of easy and you're fast at it, and you like retain information well, I mean, it's a whole different ballgame. It literally is a different world. And I've had multiple friends and clients who are either dyslexic or have like a different kind of relationship with how attention works in their brain. And they all have the same story. School was a nightmare. I felt so stupid. I had to cheat my way through. I was bored all the time. Like Mm. my experience of school was so easy breezy. Yeah. I'm good at this. I'm good. I was like a Hermione Granger truly. And that was before Hermione was birthed into the world. Although I would like to note that I'm exact same paid, exact same age Age. as Harry, Hermione and Ron. So I don't know if that's, I think it is a thing because so am I. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's something, there's something unique about the experience of growing with the Harry Potter kids that is like a one-time It's a one-time thing, thing, once in a lifetime, probably once in a century. I'm sorry for anyone who wasn't that age, but we lucked out. And I literally grew up with Harry, Hermione, and Ron. So piano, and then I got to be, you know, really looking good on my grades. And so I channeled most of my middle school and high school energies into academics I think, again, it was really natural and easy for me, and I saw the value. So my creative pursuits diminished the more I channeled into, like, book. Yeah. What do we call that? Book study? book learning. Book learning. That's what I was looking for. So then piano was kind of just, like, happening, but more of... It felt almost like... It wasn't creative as much as it was just kind of... It was definitely like... Replicating. A regime thing. And, you know, I had somewhere in the back of my head, I knew it was probably good for me. But it did not feel like a creative outlet. Um, It felt like math, which was Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. Math was fine. But yeah, music felt like math. So the little girl creativity, I would say it waned simply because school was like a sure bet in my head. Like if I channel myself into school, I will be successful. Yeah. Channeling myself into creativity. I didn't have any templates. Kind of risky. Yeah. It, oh, I totally no relate one to in that. My family. Yeah. 
I mean, my dad's an engineer and my mom, she really loves music. So there was plenty of classical music, musicals, operas and stuff playing in the house. But they were all, that was hobby land, yeah. like money land, success land. That all was like, my dad was an engineer, my mom had been a teacher. So I would say the creativity portion of my energy was diminished. And then I graduated high school early, actually. Okay. And again, I think this was more of like, oh, I can get ahead. The get ahead mentality that I think our generation, you know, is kind of, that's what smart people do. So then I was off to college and I think the most creative things I did during, you know, elementary, middle and high school were imagination land. Yeah. Like that literally was my biggest creative outlet was like make believe, playing dress ups, um, you know, creating worlds in my head. But I wasn't writing creatively and I I certainly wasn't like making visual art. I have two questions. Okay. You mentioned visual art for the first time just now, right as I was saying, I have two questions, um, <laughs> which one of those questions is going to be, I know you're good at visual art. I know you have a degree in interior design. So um, I have to assume that there was, there were things going on. Could it have been clothing? Could it have been decorating your room? Could it have been makeup? Uh, could it have been, if you're like me, the visual art that I was doing was like, decorating my binders for math class. I am so excited to talk about this because I've never even, I forgot about this till you just asked. This is how like deep the recesses of childhood creativity have been stored. I, this is so perfect. It's such a perfect reflection of my character. I absolutely loved going house hunting with my parents. Mm. So we moved a lot. Just my Mm -hmm. dad would change jobs. We'd move. There was a lot of house buying and house selling in my childhood. And even though I was the youngest child and no one expected Christine to go along to every, you know, um, look at every house, I went every time. I loved Loved house hunting with my parents and it was all about the design. Yeah. And I would walk into a home, little like 10-year-old Christine, 12-year-old Christine, 14-year-old Christine, whatever age, and I would just make believe in my mind how I would decorate would the house, yeah. how I would stage it. And I did not realize I was doing this, right? Uh, yeah. Until probably middle school, I started a binder. A binder. And it was essentially an the early Leslie version. Leslie Nope both of us. Yes. I know it's true. Oh my gosh. A three ring binder, <laughs> hole punched papers. I started like an early version of a scrapbook yeah. where I would... And I don't even know how I got these magazines. My mom might have noticed how weirdly obsessed I was with going house hunting. So I think she might have subscribed to Better Homes and Gardens mm. for me. And I started cutting out my favorite pictures from Better Homes. Even I did that too. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I asked for Christmas for a subscription to Family Circle. Of course. Oh. When I was like a little, little kid. <laughs> and I had a subscription to Family Circle for like a couple of years. And I got real dreamy with it. So dreamy. And this, like, just in case anyone younger than us is listening, Pinterest didn't exist yet. Yeah. So and Family Circle is, like, not a magazine for kids. It's and not. Um, yeah. And just to, like, be clear, because you probably don't know that either if you weren't around at that time. So I remember there was a curtain catalog. Plenty of pictures got cut out from the curtain catalog. Multiple issues of Better Homes and Gardens. Anything I could find that was in the realm of home decor, I started my little three ring binder and I would make notes. It was kind Mm -hmm. of organized. And that, 
um, absolutely was where some creativity, and I had no clue that that's what yeah. I was channeling. And then to your point about makeup and styling, nada. Okay. Like little Christine did I also not. was not doing those things. Zero makeup all the way through high school. Hairstyle, blow it dry in the morning. That's yeah. it. Clothing, I really didn't start to even experiment with style until late high school. And even then it was like very conservative, like yeah. so safe. Like pretty much I shopped at Maurice's. Yeah. Literally my entire high school wardrobe came from Maurice's. I I remember feeling like an, a lot of anxiety about that stuff yes. in high school because my mom's very stylish, yeah. but I felt really hardcore like it was her thing. And I felt like I had some tools just because she was good at it, but I also felt very like, I don't know that I'm allowed to even have an opinion about these things. It was a stressful thing for me. I can only imagine because my mom was different. She was very, very, very conservative. So she always wore makeup and she likes put herself together every day. She was a well-dressed woman, but it was like, when you think conservative, think the next step, ultra conservative. Mm. And so my model, as far as like a female model in the home was like, yes, you put yourself together every day, but it is not flashy. Yeah. It is like, it's like about hygiene and function truly. And like appropriateness Yeah, with a capital A. So I remember, and this is funny. Oh man, it's so fun to tell stories I never tell anyone. I don't think I've ever told anyone this. I remember in high school, as I said, I shopped at Maurice's and probably like JCPenney because yeah. that's where my mom shopped. Mervyn's. Mervyn's. Can I raise you a Mervyn's? Actually, <laughs> I totally remember going to Mervyn's with my mom. May it rest in peace. I don't think it's around it's anymore. It's not okay. a thing anymore. Well, we could say same about pennies. Okay. So... That was like the safe places, right? Like mom went to Penny's and Mervyn's and so I could go there. But then I, I don't remember how I discovered Maurice's, but it was somehow this like exciting tween store that was also conservative, yeah. but like it felt like it was made for me. Yeah. So the amount of times my sweet mom took me to Mar- Maurice's, I can't remember. Okay. But then mid high school, I got the courage and I mean, it was literal courage to walk into a gap. Because mm-hmm. in my head, only popular kids mm. chopped at Gap oh and gosh, Old Navy. I relate to that so much. Not, we're not even going to go to Abercrombie and Abercrombie, Fitch. Abercrombie, no. Hollister, you it's c- terrifying in there. You literally couldn't have paid me to walk in there because I was so scared someone would see me. And and let me let me, yeah. let me me guess what you're about to say. You, you got it. See you and think like, how dare you think yes. you belong in here? Oh my gosh, the words out of my mouth. Yeah. like this- Which is how I felt about my own mom. She would have said, yeah, totally. So I, that is so terrifying. I didn't have it from the home. I don't think my mom even knew the stigma of Abercrombie and Fitch. Clearly I did. Yeah. The, but I got the courage in high school to walk into a gap store and I kid you not, my heart was racing. And then I, over time I got acclimated. <laughs> and before I got to college, I had been okay to walk into an old Navy in a gap. But I will say this, and I'm sure you can relate. I was a very observant child, as we've talked about. So even though the design thing that was happening in the notebook with the three-ring binder, like that was private, so it was fine. Nobody needed to know. I was taking notes on fashion. As unconfident as I was to actually wear the clothes or pretend to be like the cool girls, I memorized 
the back pocket design Mm -hmm. of every single jean brand Mm. anyone at my high school wore. So I could tell you where they got their jeans just from the back pocket design. Remember how Abercrombie was like the one arch and then the other arch? I don't remember that, but I totally believe you. Well, I can also take you through Express, American (laughs) Eagle, Hollister, (laughs) Cavalry. I went to high school in Wisconsin, so let me just be clear. Like there was pretty vanilla flavors and those were the main brands. So, and also Guess was big oh, back then. I don't even feel like Guess was at my high school. Maybe that was too cool for mm. rural mm, suburbia, Wisconsin. So I was paying attention. I was paying close attention yeah. to fashion, but in no way did I have the confidence yeah. to like publicly present. Um, I totally relate to that. And I'm glad I asked because I was like, I have to assume that there was like stuff going on. Like you were, you were having visual, like there were things. You were so perceptive. I forget about all that. Oh, it all was going on. Yeah. I mean, but I fully relate to that thing of like, you have stuff going on in your mind, but do not have the confidence to execute. Um, I mean, I felt like that when I was in college about music stuff and I was in a music school. I can only imagine how intimidating it was to be in music school. Yeah. Holy moly. Well, and I think I felt like, I mean, I've, I've probably talked about this before, but I think I felt like. I, you know, I was the only like Mormon in my school and in college. And I was very aware that I was perceived as being like really conservative. And I was, um, and I am in so many ways. Um, but I also am not a conservative creator. Like my, my creative stuff is not at all conservative. And I think like just the, the worry that someone would have that, like you did this or like, you think you're going to do this. I knew I couldn't handle it. I was too fragile, you know? Oh gosh. Isn't that amazing? The self-awareness, the subconscious self-awareness. Yeah, totally. And I think about that a lot as a teacher, like, you know, I always wonder what's the stuff that my students, uh, are thinking, but are like worried to say. And so like any of my students would tell you, like, I use the phrase, I give you permission, like all the time. Um, just like, Hey, just say it, just, just say it. Like, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to judge like your thoughts. Um, and I wish that more teachers did that. And I certainly wish that my teachers had done it. That's super powerful. Would have been productive more early, (laughs) earlier. It wouldn't have taken me so long to be like, you know what? I'm trying it. It was my idea. I'm doing it. Um, so revolutionary. Okay. And then my other question, let me, can I remember it? Yes. My other question is, I have been thinking a lot in the last several years about how we, as creative people of any kind, apply creativity to like other people, how we talk to people, how we ask questions about people, how we perceive people. And I know that you are good at that. Were you doing that as a youth? Yes, I have always been a listener and people have always been drawn to me to share Like from the time I was small, I just remember people opening their hearts and sharing with me. So a big part of my education as a youngster was learning emotional intelligence and social Mm -hmm. cues from observing people. As I said, like during my shy observant years, I was a lot of just like quietly listening and picking up the cues. And then when people started confiding in me and sharing with me all sorts of things, you know, that I didn't per se elicit or ask for That was absolutely a big part of my education. And to be honest, I do want to credit book reading again. Yeah. Because 
the amount of books I read and stories I read were the foundation of a lot of me understanding human behavior, mm -hmm. thought process, language, mm -hmm. expression. Yeah, I read I, that too. I absolutely look back and realize that's where I was getting so much of my foundation to express verbally yeah. and in writing and to understand when people came to me and were talking to me or I was listening to conversations, I was starting to pick up all the nuance of yeah. like creative expression through language because I, I mean, I had like yeah. a lot of time, I would say just to absorb. Yeah. Um, did and does that feel creative to you? Now it does because, I mean, we haven't really talked about this, but literally my career has taken me into the craft of verbal communication yeah. and storytelling. So now it feels very creative. But at the time, I totally was oblivious yeah. that that's what I was picking up. I, I'm really into this idea lately of like whether like communication is creative and even just kind of like thoughts. Um, I certainly have like evolved my thinking on this, but I, I do know that when I was a kid, I play or like a, a teenager, maybe I sort of like played this like little game in my brain where like I would see somebody, you know, do something or say something. And I would try to think of like as many different possibilities as to like why they were doing or saying that thing, like trying to like create backstories. Oh, oh, okay. I and totally context. relate to that. Even when I was little, I remember if we were driving through the neighborhood at night, I would always look into the windows that were lit and the blinds were open and yeah. I'd make up stories about the people yeah. who lived there. And I do think that without realizing it, I was doing the same when people would talk. Yeah. And this was like very subconscious because now through the last five years, I've become obsessed with like subconscious, how we think, what triggers us, why we say what we say, blah, blah, blah. So now I think of it like very creatively when people yeah. phrasing, even the syntax of how they express themselves. I'm like, oh, what is that saying about your subconscious? Yeah. But sometimes I'll, I'll think that's really scientific, but I think you're right. It's human expression is creativity. Like what's the yeah. definition if not that? I think so. And, and yeah, just like even kind of your thoughts and like, I think, I think interpretation is creative. I mean, look. it is, but yeah, I also like, I have this weird thing, Andrew, if Andrew is here, he'd be like, yeah, she does that. But like, I feel so like romantic about seeing like a single shoe anywhere, any place. If I see like a lonely shoe, like on the freeway. I like immediately I'm like, oh, where's your buddy? Yes. And like imagining like all of the ways in which this shoe got here by herself. Yes. <laughs> oh, I relate. <laughs> I do make narratives up about probably everything. Yeah. Just maybe to reiterate, but this came to mind. I, my boyfriend is a DJ and we had dinner one night all together, Emily, Andrew, he and I, and we talked a lot about music and everyone was at a much elevated, much more elevated level than I was because <laughs> no. everyone had a lot of I mean, knowledge vocabulary, about yeah. jazz and yeah. I was just sort of absorbing. But dating a DJ who, let me be clear, is a vinyl DJ who specializes in like 60s, 70s, 80s, like jazz, soul, funk, I have really had an opportunity to like reevaluate my own music taste and kind of get curious about like why I listen to the music I listen to. And something that's come up between he and I is that I, before I lived in Texas, I don't think I'd ever really listen to country music 
per se very much, but seven years in Dallas definitely like exposed me to the genre to where I just developed like a, a, um, amiable connection with it. Like I wouldn't say I'm a hardcore country fan, but I don't mind listening to it. So since living in Utah, I've kind of like reconnected and been listening to a little more country just casually on the radio when I'm driving. Not that I, again, am any kind of connoisseur or have like strong feelings, but dating a DJ who is not a big fan of like popular country music for understandable reasons (laughs) has really made me curious. Like what is it about country music that I'm resonating with? Because Mm. the music is pretty simple and the words are pretty formulaic. Yeah. And I've thought about this a lot and it's come to me that it's all about storytelling and these human emotions and experiences. And it almost doesn't matter what the music sounds like or even what the lyrics are. I'm always resonating to like the heart of the story with country music. And literally the song could be kind of just like a real throwaway song. But if there's a one liner or a certain beat sequence Mm -hmm. that reminds me of an emotional story or moment I'm like I can listen to it over and over and over again Mm. I I get that I I don't know that I feel that way about country music I I don't I don't have strong feelings either way but I I relate to that with certain things for sure like all it needs to give me is like a breadcrumb and like I will I will do the rest in my mind. Literally, it could be like three words in a song and I've suddenly created yeah. a, a lifetime narrative. I feel that way about like kind of bad movies. Yeah. Like sort of like B rom-coms. Yeah. Like if there's just like a nugget of like oh, humanity, one scene, I, it's enough. A moment. It's like, oh, suddenly I've created an entire world around yeah. that. And the <laughs> whole movie could be terrible. But yeah. that one little moment. So I didn't realize that that was not universal, but I think we're unique. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's creative and it's like, I don't know, it's some kind of like combination of curiosity and sort of like a, like a generous curiosity, like to sort of infer like the, like a best possible scenario, which is ironic because I definitely do not always do that. I mean, I sometimes do the exact opposite and infer like the worst possible thing. Uh, when people are interacting like with me, but when I'm just like observing something, I, I pretty, I'm pretty likely to like apply a a generous curiosity. And I think the best example is photography. It's literally a moment captured in a still Mm -hmm. image. And there are photos I'll look at in a gallery or just wherever, obviously Pinterest, Instagram are great examples. And if the photo sparks the right thing in me I will go off into daydream land and just create a whole world yeah literally from a single photo yeah that nope there could be no humans in the photo and I'll create an entire fantasy about it I I love that and I I wish we would talk more about daydream as adults I have a feeling you talk about it more than I do and I would like to talk about it with you more (laughs) oh my gosh we could start and not stop because I I have so many thoughts it's something that I talk about with Andrew so frequently because like I need that and he he does not pretend well. Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't picture things. He, he just like, he does not do that. He like, he does it in reverse. Like he sees a thing and like, I don't know. Um, but like I'll, I will crave it. And so I, I've started saying like, can we get a little dreamy? And, and he'll, and you know, he knows that what I mean by that is like, it doesn't have to be real, but can we like imagine like the perfect landscaping or can we like imagine like a beautiful vacation that we're never going to take or can like, 
can we like imagine like, you know, this perfect day where we like go and get like a little quiche and like what's in the quiche oh and gosh. then like what do the cups this look is like? So me. Cause I need I need it. Like I want to grown up daydream. Yes. Um it's That's important the magic to magic of window shopping. Yeah. There have been many times in my life where I've been walking through like a shopping area or a mall or a cute street, you know, the boutique section of town. And I literally get just as much satisfaction from walking by the windows, window shopping and making up fantasies in my head as I ever would have from walking in, trying to close and buying them. Mm -hmm. I'm so the same. The actual satisfaction of window shopping and fantasizing fills the exact same piece of me that would by like the thrill of buying a cute new dress. And it's very convenient for my um, budget. Yeah. Like if I can tell that I just am in a mood and I don't want to spend money, I'm like, fine, totally perfect. Let's just go window shopping. Oh my gosh. I relate to that so much. So Andrew, bless his heart. He really tries when I'm like, bless I, really just, I need to get a little dreamy about something. I he, love that. He, try, he, it's so unintuitive for him and he'll be like, okay, all right. Okay. Oh my, like, bless can him. we get out some paper Time's and pencils? Oh. Can we draw it? Can we talk about it? Can we plan? Um, yeah, I, I feel that. I feel that a lot. <laughs> but to, to the, just in case we don't come back to this, I just want to say this about daydreaming. In my own self-observation over the last few years, I have realized daydreaming is like a non-negotiable essential part of my day for my mental Mm -hmm. and emotional health, Mm -hmm. which sounds audacious to Christine five years ago, but it's a fact of the matter to Christine today. Yeah. And so when I um, am planning my day or my time, I will purposely plan in daydream time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it might just be 20 minutes and I'm, conscious like I will literally look at the clock let's say it's 140 I'll be like great you can daydream for 20 minutes yeah like you can daydream until two so I'll put sometimes like parameters on it to make sure that I don't let it take over Mm -hmm. my day because it absolutely would but if it's um vacation a weekend like an open day and I don't need to put parameters I all day easily have spent two hours sitting on the couch staring out the window daydreaming uninhibited, yeah. fully satisfied. And I'll finish my little daydream session and feel like an actual physical, emotional sensation. Yeah, like your hormones are doing something. They have, I've actually experienced like a pleasurable, healthy, calming yeah. experience. And I have become fascinated by the impact of daydreaming on my health. And it's become something that I've realized and I'm still discovering has a lot to do with how I process information in the Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. And so if I have been receiving a ton of stimuli, sometimes I just need to let myself daydream my way through it Mm -hmm. to kind of sort it. And if I don't, and I just push, 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 like try and make myself focus and like be productive and not have that uninhibited brain daydream time, I will get really fatigued, cranky, um, distracted, unproductive, disorganized, disorganized. I might even cry. Like who even knows? I get like that too. But if I don't adequately allow myself time to daydream and kind of, I mean, I think that literal, the breakdown of that word daydream, it's like I'm letting my brain go to sleep while I'm awake. Yeah. And the same benefits of like sleep time where our brains like process the day. Yeah. I've realized I need to do that while I'm awake during the day. I, it's completely feel the same way. And I like absolutely do that too. I don't know that I structure. I think my, it, it kind of just happens like, and also if I don't do it in the daytime, 
it will happen in the middle of the night while I am awake. It will just make itself insomnia and it will still happen. And like, sometimes I have like nighttime anxiety. Sometimes I have nighttime daydreaming. Uh, it's not healthy. And so I need to do it during the day. <laughs> I, I very much am. I mean, I'm a big supporter of you saying that because I sleep really well, typically. Like I'm really blessed in that I can fall asleep and sleep a good night's sleep. And I don't ever remember my dreams. So I'm sure they're very productive in their own way, but yeah. I never remember them. But I would 100% agree with you. Like if that was how my body manifested and it was like, no, we're going to stay up and daydream. Yeah to get it done. Like I would have to, Yeah, I would have to. Yeah. And I, and I do, and I do it most days. I, you can like, I, I'm not even kidding. Like I have proof. You could look at my Fitbit like report. It, it goes like this, like f- four or five days out of seven, I fall asleep around like midnight. I wake up around three. I stay awake for two or three hours and then I sleep for another two or three. And if that's happening, it's one of two things. It's anxiety or it's nighttime daydreaming. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can't argue with results. Yeah. Like your body and mind are have made an executive decision. Yeah. You need to pr- work through this these things. Truly. Yeah. Or you need to have totally unreasonable anxiety. And that's a separate issue. That's a se- Yeah. I but mean. sometimes I feel totally calm. I feel totally like I just have ideas that need some space. Like those ideas just, they li- they need actual physical time. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Enough about me. Well, um, I was going to say, well, I feel good. We could keep going on daydreaming, but I think we've made, the, I've important. made the point. And, it, and I, okay. So the, the, the place that I want to go back to is by the time you were going to go to college and you were like choosing your major and stuff, you hadn't been doing creative stuff in any sort of like regulated way, but you were doing all this big picture creative, um, in this types of things we're talking about. So I, I'm assuming that like when you chose your degree, you just like weren't thinking about that. No, I chose very serendipitously and I wouldn't say through any merit of my own, my first semester of college, literally having no idea what I should major in. I signed up for a humanities 101 or something. It was probably like a general credit or something. And I didn't even know what the word meant at the time, I don't think. But if anyone who's unfamiliar or knew at one time and forgot, which is totally normal, humanities is the study of all the art forms and how they have kind of through the ages helped humans express themselves. So the humanities is a study of writing, art, dance, music, theology, architecture. like the architecture, the whole thing, and how humans have used these to kind of, you know, make sense of the human experience. Yeah. Wow, so that's, a, that's, I had forgotten that your bachelor's degree was in humanities. I uh, mean, it's, it's such perfect. a one-off because everyone <laughs> makes fun of humanities majors for good reason. But in my opinion, it was like the I best mean, three you were years. there because that was like, that's like what you do. <laughs> oh my gosh. It couldn't have been a better fit for my entire yeah. life. And I had no clue at the time. Yeah. But I went to this class and it was just a completely natural fit. It was mm. effortless. It was honestly a lot of how I'd grown up reading going to the opera, going to the symphony, again, kind of growing up in this household that was very focused on like the traditional arts. And so, so much of what we were learning and talking about felt really natural to me. And I realized that there was a major called humanities. And with, again, not really for sure knowing what that meant. I was like, well, let's just declare that and get going. 
So it was a complete serendipity that I stumbled into it, took that class my first semester, found out there was a major, and literally within the, my that first year of college, I'd applied to a studied abroad program in London, been accepted, and the first semester of my sophomore year, I was in London, which was, of course, wow. the treasure trove of all yeah. treasure troves as a little 19-year-old. Yeah. Suddenly, I'm running around one of the you know most art-rich cities yeah. in the world, and being taught by my professors. It was just a wonderland. So by the time I got back from London, I was like, oh, duh. Like, this is so fun. It's it, obviously the conversations I was having in class and papers I was writing were becoming much more complex. I was yeah. starting to think critically. I was starting to see the value on a bigger, like, meta scale of why it would be helpful to be studying, like, the human experience and human yeah. expression. And so... I ended up breezing through college in three years, which I know nobody does, yeah. but it was so effortless yeah. because I had just stumbled into this world that was very natural for me and how my brain worked and how I'd been raised. And by the time I graduated, literally almost without trying, I was kind of just set up with this foundation of how to critically yeah. think about the human experience through creative expression. Um, I want to ask a question that like, I, I always am curious about it, but I hardly ever ask it because people take it the wrong way, but I think you'll know where you'll know where I'm coming from. (laughs) So you, you mentioned like, you know, people make fun of humanities majors and I think people kind of either make fun of or pedestalize all sorts of art majors. And I, I like to ask how that kind of perception affects people, but most of my guests are like, well, I try not to care what people think. And I'm like, I know, I know you care. Um, but I'm, I'm not curious in the sense that like we make decisions because of what people are doing or anything. You can throw that on the ground. No, I really like okay, it. I'm you holding cuddle it. to the okay. blanket. It's I a little wanna, blanky. Okay. It's really comfortable. <laughs> Sometimes I like having a blanket on my lap because it like, gives your elbow yeah. some support. Like it's a little belly, an extra yeah. belly for you. Yeah. Nice. Um, well, I support you just cuddling that blanket. I'm about it. Thank you. Um, but I, I do feel like, you know, when... When you're, you know, 18, 19, 20, you're so, um, your sense of identity has the potential to be, and, you know, arguably just is so fragile. Um, and I think that the way that people reflect back at you, kind of who they see you, it can't help but affect how you see you. Um, and, and whether or not you really try to take those things into account, um, I do think it, it matters. And I like to ask young people, like, you know, did the perception of people around you, was it something that you, um, you know, kept, stayed on your path in, in despite, or was it something that you kind of felt like motivated you? And I just, how, what was that like for you? I'm so thrilled you asked because this is probably not what you're expecting. This is another side of Christine that usually most people don't get to see, but it's the yes. truth. Um, college Christine tuned in pretty quickly to the value of this study of humanities. Like like I said, understanding human expression and kind of the ways that throughout history humans have found a way to make sense of their experience through art. I completely thought I was better than everyone. I was like, those Mm. fools don't even know. So Mm. it was like very judgy in a way, but also it felt so obvious to me. Like all those stupid business kids have no idea 
like what they're doing because over here in humanities, we're learning about why humans do what they do and the impact of human creativity. And so I felt so confident about the value of what I was learning. It didn't even occur to me to be offended or feel bad that I was in college and not studying something that was obviously going to get me a job after. Yeah. I think a big part of that was because I felt really confident in my smarts. I'd always just been confident in my smarts. So I knew intuitively I'm going to go to get a job. No problem. I relate to that also. And I do think that was probably unique for me because I had this kind of academic confidence where I'd always excelled in the structured world of academia and I got along with people fine. And I kind of was waking up to this fact that social skills is actually what gets you ahead in the world. This was all happening at the same time. I was studying humanities. I was understanding human culture. I was confident in academia and I realized I had good social skills. And so that combo gave me a ton of confidence that I'm going to be fine. I'm not even worried about the job. That's like an afterthought. What I'm learning right now is this like, very interesting, rich world of human behavior and expression. And it was so clearly valuable to me that when people would like make fun of art majors or humanities majors, I would just smile sweetly yeah, and be like, kind of like jokes on you. Buddy, I, and I would like laugh yeah. publicly and be like, I know it's so funny. And literally it didn't even phase me because I would see these kids, you know, in all these different other colleges, you know, kind of studying more of the technical fields and I would always be like you're gonna be miserable I mean this is really judgy of me for sure like there was definitely some self-righteousness well, going on I mean once again when you're 18 19 20 oh. like you're I I just feel like your identity almost can't help but like have for some sure. problematic elements whatever they are <laughs> like you your perspectives just like even if you're very nuanced for your age I feel like your perspectives just cannot be nu- nuanced enough right. for you to avoid some kind of judgment, whether it's of others or of yourself. Like there's going to be imbalance in your definition of immaturity. Bless us all. We have to go through it. Like there's no way to speed through the maturation process, even though some people experience really heavy things early on that do. I am with you. Like I look back now and I'm like, that was fine. It was totally fine yeah. that I was like a self-righteous little, mm-hmm. you know, humanities major it was important at the time for me to have that confidence. That's what I was going to say. Like, it's almost like that perspective was, I mean, maybe this isn't the right word, but like in its, in its way, it was like defensive. Like it was protecting that confidence. Yeah. And for like very good reason, as it turned out, it was very helpful that I studied that in college. It's paid off a thousand times, but I wouldn't have understood back then what it was actually going to pay off I just needed the confidence at the time to be like this is fine and I'll get a job and then well do you find it now this is this is maybe slightly unrelated but do you find it now like ironic that you are not in like any sort of corporate academic like you're in this like freelance no structure land it's so ironic (laughs) it's so good literally this morning I had like an initial call with a new client and I was briefly telling them my resume, you know, kind of just the history of my career in a nutshell. And I laughed again because it's too good. Like I studied humanities in college. I got a job selling insurance. I ended up quitting after six years and 
restarting my career and learning the trade of podcasting, moving to LA and you working with celebrities. You got a master's degree in there too. Okay, hold on. It was a second bachelor's. You got a second bachelor's Let's degree just, in there too. And I did get a second bachelor's degree in interior design. As we've discussed, that manifested itself yeah. in four more years of school. But I think when I look at my career now and it's so... It was going along so predictable. Everything was totally normal until the fateful day when I reached full-on burnout. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. everything was normal and you could track it easily. And then the day of burnout and reckoning came and then everything changed. Yeah. Okay. We'll maybe talk about that a little bit more when we get there. Is there anything else that you want to say about like your, your time in your bachelor's degree? I mean, I think like you said some important stuff. I, I will just say leave this. The door open. Yeah, I appreciate that. College was such a blip on the map for me. Like it truly happened in the blink of an eye. It was a really positive experience. I thoroughly enjoyed college. I had a great social experience. I had a great academic experience. Obviously, I went to London for months. It was fabulous. But I think the the takeaway for me. And I even think I knew this when I graduated, which is pretty amazing. I knew that I'd gone to college for my own well-being and not for my career. Even when I was in college, I knew I was there for personal development and not for career advancement. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing to me that I knew that, but I just knew you went to college yeah. to personally evolve and your career will take another path. Yeah. I don't want to like project this on you, but I think for me, some of that, cause I, I felt, I think, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. Cause I, I thought, I think I felt, I oscillated between both, but the part of me that felt like college is about self like growth. Um, I think was like essentially Mormon for me and essentially like female Mormon. Like, I think I kind of, I had this thing that was like, I'm not going to work anyway. <laughs> You know? Okay. Well, that's actually, since you brought it up, I do think that's worth mentioning because I also was raised Mormon. Still, that's the faith I choose, although my expression is probably vastly different now than maybe the way I was raised. But I was raised in a household where both my parents had gone to college and gotten an education, but my mother was work was not full-time working. Yeah. She was in the home as a full-time mother yeah. and h- homemaker. So that was kind of the model for me, very traditional. However, education had always been heavily promoted in the home. So I knew I was going to go to college. And yet, I don't know why I realized sometime during college, oh, I'm going to have a career. Yeah. Even though it wasn't like a driving force and I wasn't clear about what my career was going to be. I just knew I was I totally like, get that. Oh, I'm going to have a career and it's very convenient that I'm getting a college degree since that's what people say yeah. is important for career. But in the same breath, I knew that my career wasn't going to be a humanities professor. Yeah. It's weird. It's like, I mean, I'm sure like, you know, our stories are a little bit different, but like I definitely had both. It was like, there was this thought in my mind of like, it doesn't have to be about money. Like I I'm here to like learn and grow and like explore. But then I also felt very like, you know, about my own financial security. And I also had this thing of like, maybe I'm not going to be like a career person. Like I didn't necessarily like picture it. I didn't picture myself always having a job. 
but I felt like I'll always be working. It was a weird combination of things. Yes. Okay, I have so many thoughts about this, but now I have to pee. Can I? Yes, please pee. pee. Yeah, I'll pause. Because I got so excited, and then I was like, "Shoot!" (laughs) I have so many things to say about that. Oh dear. I um, I felt really comfortable taking pee breaks when I heard one of my favorite podcasters start doing it because he would do like sometimes two hour long. Who is it? Ritual. Listen to it, but my favorite podcasters also take pee breaks, and they would leave it in. They're like, "Hold on, gotta pee," and then they come back. And I was like, "Rich can do it. Anyone can do it." I feel so much the same way. Um, Okay, yeah. So we were talking about. I mean, go ahead. Whatever you remember. Okay, you remember what it was. Yes. So after the pee break, I feel better now and ready to continue. (laughs) So when I was in college realizing I found so much value in studying humanities and it was definitely not going to be my career at the same time and knowing I was going to have a career and also having no idea what my career was going to be for some reason that caused me no anxiety Hmm. and I think that's unique and I can't explain why that was part of it I think back to the point about me being confident in my intellect and knowing that I had good social skills I was like job is job money is money I'll always be able to get hired to do something for someone. Mm-hmm. But I think that there was a big difference. Here we go. This is what I wanted to say. In that but raised in a traditional home where the the man was the breadwinner and the mother was the housewife. Yeah. I didn't feel the pressure yeah. that I would have, I think, if I had been a man to create a career opportunity that was gonna pay yeah. let's just say six figures or whatever yeah. I thought in my head was a good living. I thought I'll have a career and I'll make money and I'm not too worried about it because you don't have to make that much money to just survive on your own. Yeah. And if for some reason, like I need to be able to, I'm charming and I'm smart and like the backup career, like the husband dies and or gets disabled and I step in as the breadwinner. Fine. I'll make it work. Yeah. But it totally to your point, I didn't feel any pressure. I'm sure I would have felt as a man being raised in a traditional home, like I've got to figure out a career that can make this much money and be able to support a family. I felt absolutely zero of that. I've talked about this type of a subject with a few people, but I don't know that I've quite, and I, and I, I like to talk about it because it's important. Um, and, and I think like maybe the thing that I haven't quite verbalized that I'd like to is like this type of a, this type of a thing it's pros and cons in both and in both directions. I see just as many really creative young men who feel like I can't be creative because I need to support this hypothetical future family, but I'm 17, but blah. And they make decisions that are, you know, whatever that, that maybe have nothing to do with what their future is going to be. Meanwhile, so many girls, like I would be a doctor, but I need to. And it makes me so mad. Um, I just feel like do the thing that you're moved to do. And, you know, if you want to find a partner, you know, you'll find someone who balances that, whether that means you're both creatives and maybe you don't have like stable health insurance in an easy way, but your schedules are totally free. You can pick up and move. You can, you know, or you, you, you know, you're, you're a lawyer and you're with someone else who's a lawyer and you both totally understand your workaholic, um, you know, whatever, or it's like one of each doesn't matter who is who, you know, why aren't we saying this to young people? 
Well, don't get me started because I have a whole spiel to say. But one, amen. Two, I think if you're listening and you might kind of resonate and this is something you've been thinking about, like, please listen because... Emily and I have been thinking about this for over a decade and have some perspective now as successful creatives. Like I've listened to countless interviews with successful creatives to get insight about this because to your point, it wasn't presented to me organically through the traditional education or career world. I actually only learned about what all the options are by listening to literally hundreds of hours of creatives be interviewed. Mm -hmm. And that was the only reason I ever had the confidence at a certain point in my career to walk away from the normal corporate job and even enter the world of professional creative, um, Professional creative. There we go. Professional creativity. There we go. Because I had listened to so many creatives explain. You start to have a template. How they, and it was literally. Or hundreds of templates. Hundreds of templates that I found on my own that would never have been presented to me if I just kind of kept Mm -hmm. in my channel and only listened to like Mm -hmm. the traditional options. Yeah. That's creativity too. I mean, okay, this is like mm, tangent land, but like, you know, I was talking, my sister just moved up here to Utah to go to school from Arizona. And it's kind of sweet because um, I moved out of state when she was four. So it's a brand, it's kind of like a brand new relationship. We're having this really weird experience where like we do and say the same things. (gasps) It's like one of the, it's like removed twins only instead I'm 13 years older. It's very bizarre. And I'm super about it. Um, But like, you know, we were talking the other day and she said something about like, it's really a bummer when like my best friend is a boy and I know that that friendship's going to end because he's going to, you know, date someone or get married. And I was just like, Annie, no, that is not that is not a fixed, that's not a But fact. I remember thinking that when I was well, her Well, we age. both had so many friends that were boys too. And yeah. guess what? We're not friends with any of them anymore because they were in that mindset. Truly. Um, but now, I mean, I have lots of friends that are guys that I go to lunch with and go to dinner with and just, you know, um, but that's just, again, it's kind of that creativity of like, okay, really? But is there another option? Um, and when that's not modeled for you in your in your youth, I think you're lucky if you're the kind of brain that just like figures it out. And you're a rare unicorn if you just figure it out without a template. Yeah. 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 I I will just say one more thing because I don't want to like villainize anyone. I do think our generation is uniquely um, presented with the opportunity to reinvent what we were offered as children. Like we were both raised in a world without the internet. And then we came of age when the internet happened. So honest to goodness, our well-intentioned parents raised us for a world that no longer exists. And there's no way they could have known that. Right. So uh, specifically speaking about the millennial generation, which we are, I think in a very interesting way, we have a responsibility to be a mouthpiece for what it looks like to create your own template and be unorthodox about finding mentors because we've literally had to figure it out from scratch for no one's fault. Like our parents did a great job of trying to prepare us for the world they thought we were going to live in. The internet happened, everything changed. And now just because of the time we were born, we figured it out on our own. We're crafting a new world together But I think it's on us to be really vocal and say the way that you create a life of creativity and success and financial stability 
is yeah. not going to look the same for any two people. And yeah. that's actually the norm. Right. Yeah. I, I feel strongly about this as well. You got to talk about it. Yeah. Um, okay. Is there anything we need to talk about, about the time that you were working in corporate stuff? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, this is too good. So from the time I was 21 to the time I was 27, I sold insurance in a cubicle in a brokerage in Dallas, Texas. And at the time I took the job, I actually, I didn't even know that that was the job, which is fine. The recruiters did a great job. I literally got a phone call as I was walking to class my last semester of school and I got recruited through some bizarre fluke, to be honest, like the business school somehow had found my resume and it got in the shuffle with all the business kids. And then I got hired for this sales job essentially. So I moved to Dallas, Texas, like two days after college graduation, I've got this corporate job that sounds really good on paper. And I'm with a bunch of like fun, also recent grads. So yeah. to be honest, it was a good time. You knew a lot that of my was coworkers. Like our whole friend group. We yeah. like met at the time, like I was working with a bunch of really fun people. It was an intense job. It was sales. So there was a big learning curve and a lot of long hours, but I was working with fun people. I was 21, like no responsibilities in the world, making more money than I'd ever had, you yeah. know, like $35,000 a year, more money than I ever had. Like this was like fun, fun, fun. I was living in like a big city, Dallas, yeah. Texas. Like it was wild in as far as like how many hours I was working and how hard the job was, but it was also like fine because I was having fun and with cool people. So this goes on for a couple of years and then, you know, time will tell. And the toll started to mount. And I was like, wow, I'm actually getting really tired. There's some toxicity here. I don't know that I'm really fulfilled by this. The money is no longer that big of an allure. It only took a couple of years for me to realize this isn't a long-term solution. It's fine. as like a temporary way to like pay for my life and get some basic business experience. So a couple of years into the corporate job, I was like, what's the next phase? And still being, you know, how do I want to say this? I still had a really traditional mentality. Yeah. So I was like, well, the the obvious thing to do is to go back to school and get a degree that will now that I've had my fun with my first degree that was all for me mm-hmm. and I've had some business experience. Let's go get a degree that gets me a job. Yeah. So I went back to school for interior design because... I had put the dots together by that yeah. point that my three ring binder yeah. and my house hunting <laughs> obsession at eight was actually a indications yeah. that people who have that tendency actually become something called an interior designer. So with great evidence on the table, I pursue this four more years of this other second bachelor's degree and was working, you know, the whole time was able to make that work. So I go back to school for the first time in my life. I'm taking art classes like at a collegiate level, yeah. I'm taking design classes at a collegiate level. I'm like, wow, like, oh my gosh, I'm one of those like creative types yeah. for the first time oh in my, my gosh, life. That's so crazy. Yeah. Literally for the first time in my life, I was like, maybe I'm going to be like a, a creative, creative type yeah. because the only reason I felt comfortable saying that was because I was going to have a piece of paper that said she got a degree oh my gosh. in a bachelor of arts. That is such a thing. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I go through the whole four years and as you can imagine, working the insurance job, going to school an hour away, interning and keeping us up social life, totally exhausted. Yeah. So by the time I finish the bachelor's degree, I'm at like full burnout. Yeah. Oh no. That's what I'll say about my time in corporate. Did you ever work as an interior designer? 
technically my friend Patty paid me $300 to help her decorate her new office. That is the extent of my that's professional so, interior design so, like, career. It's just so, uh, like, what do I want to say? Like, of of course you, of course you didn't, you know, like, and, and not because like you couldn't, but just like, it's so, it seems so clear that like, like it was about that permission. Like it was that. Per- it, it was that- 100% about permission to be creative. Yeah. I can oh prove gosh. it through this degree and these hours I put in this classroom and this, you know, internship I did here and this internship I did there. Then I can prove that I have the capacity to be paid to be creative. Ugh. I mean, do you want to say anything about that? Like, yeah, like in terms of advice or like. For sure. I think that um, to the point we just made, I was raised in a time when you proved your credentials through education and um, a resume. So it made total sense to me that that's what you did. Yeah. If I was 22 right now and thinking I wanted to be an interior designer, I would absolutely not get the degree. Yeah. I would 100% start to work for someone in a studio, learning on the job and taking classes online from real life designers who have some of the best material in the world online. I would be listening to podcasts. I would be watching YouTube videos. Nothing about my approach would be the same now because I understand the resources. So I don't in any way regret the four years of design school that I paid for and spent. Yeah. Even though I never plan on using them professionally, they were like an invaluable lesson that the old model of education and professional development is actually no longer viable, Mm. but it was really important for me to learn that by experience. Well, you know, it's one of those things where like, you're just, you're one foot in front of the other in these types of careers that we're in, like for better and worse, hopefully mostly better. Um, but yeah, you just don't know. I mean, you don't know what your options are. You don't know what the opportunities are. And it's easy to say, you know, in retrospect, like, oh, I could have done this thing without having had that thing. But like doing that thing was what gave you the confidence to like, you know, it just, there's no way to like solve that puzzle retroactively. Not at all. And I don't regret a single one of those classes I took or dollars I spent or miles I drove in the car. Like it was such important thinking time for yeah. me because I I did have a lot of time in the car um, driving up to the university. It was about 50 minutes away from where I lived. And because I was already in my mid-20s and a professional, I was in a very different space than the other students in the class, mm-hmm. the rest of whom were undergrads for the first mm-hmm. time. So I was like five years older than all of them. I had a career underway. I had money to pay my bills. I lived in downtown Dallas, like totally different social world. I didn't like hang out and socialize with my classmates. They were all sweet girls and I had a lot of fun. We were buds, but like the second the bell rang, I was like back in my car going downtown to like hang out with the big kids, you know? (laughs) So (laughs) I, I don't in any way want to discredit the value of my experience. It just didn't prepare me for what I thought it was preparing me for. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's like the story of so many things. I mean, yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure you, you, you think that about what you're doing now sometimes too. I for sure sometimes just think like, I wonder what this is that I'm in right now. (laughs) I wonder what this will look like. Well, especially now that I have a little bit of perspective about how 
what you think is going on is never what's going on. And Mm -hmm. there's always a bigger picture. Of course, like I'm in an interesting chapter right now that I absolutely could never have dreamed up or planned, but it's so obvious to me with a little bit of hindsight that I'm being prepared for something bigger that's coming. Well, that's so like that we could go so like meta and also whatever the opposite of meta is. What, what is it? Super literal. No, I mean like little. Oh, micro. Micro. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like that's how creativity works too. Like you, your best projects, I think the stuff that's the most kind of unique and the most like, um, yeah, unique, like un- unreplicable. Um, it happens because you start with one thing and then you get in some kind of a trouble with it. And then as you solve that problem, you arrive somewhere totally unique that you never could have planned to arrive. I, I know that happens with me with like music, writing music. I'm sure that happens to people who write books. I'm positive it happens to visual artists. Um, so why, why shouldn't it happen, you know, in our careers, like at writ large? What if we actually thought about our careers as creative projects? I do. I'm sure you do. Exactly. And that was like a revelation that came to me over the years because I really did think about careers in a different way. But to your point, they are creative projects. They're in evolution. They'll never quite be finished until we die. Yeah. And there's absolutely no way to understand all the influences that will shape them. Yeah. Yes, totally. Okay. Can we get the story of how you got like to where you are now. (laughs) And then let's spend the last little bit of time talking about like identity stuff. Okay, fun. So as mentioned, final semester of design school, total burnout, super tired, ready to just a big change needed to happen. And the last year-ish of design school, this was 2012, 2013, I had discovered podcasts. This was back when they were kind of coming back around just to get geek out for a moment, podcasts originated back in about 2008, were around for a little bit, kind of died off and then resurged 2012, 2013. So I had been on these long drives and I was running at the time quite a lot also for mental health. I was listening to podcasts and I happened to stumble into a few that were kind of focused on business, entrepreneurship, lifestyle, wellness, things I had never heard anyone talk about in these Mm. unorthodox ways. Mm -hmm. The hosts of these shows were like wellness gurus and athletes, and they were entrepreneurs who were creating businesses around their lifestyle and talking to these really interesting people who'd had totally unique lives, way different than anything I'd ever heard, totally off the beaten path. So I'm listening to this for like a year, and it's really embedding itself into my subconscious. So it was February, 2014, literally like two months before I'm supposed to graduate design school. I'm about to like go into spring break and spend the whole spring break working on my big final senior, you know, design project. I'm interning for Neiman Marcus in their visual design department. Like I'm prepping my resume to go design, you know, interview at design firms. And I wake up one day and I just turned a corner. Like thunderbolt lightning, my eyes pop open one day and I just was like, no. Oh my gosh. It was like the full, the, the, uh, whatever, straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Specifically, I remember seeing a post on Facebook my friend had posted and it said something like entrepreneur apprenticeship. And somehow that just like lit the spark and I was like, wait, I can do this another way. 
And literally within a day, I decided I'm not going to be an interior designer. I'm not going to work at a design firm. I'm not going to work in corporate America. I'm no longer going to sit at cubicles. I'm somehow going to find a way to make a living this other way, which I didn't even have words for. Yeah. So I was like, what, what do I do? This was truly uncharted waters. And I yeah. cold emailed the host of one of these podcasts I'd been listening to Cause I genuinely was like, well, this is the guy who's been talking about this so yeah. much. How does he make money? Yeah. So I just cold emailed him. I didn't ask that question. Yeah. I found a typo on his website. <laughs> I literally had never been to his website before. Yeah. His name was Lewis Howes. This show was called the school of greatness. And I was like, well, how does this guy make money? So I go to his website. I don't find the answer, but I find a typo on his bio. And I was back to like grammar school yeah. from eight, eight years old. So I'm like, in my head, he was a big deal at the time. I was like, wow, this guy can't have a, a typo yeah. in his bio. You know, Mama Baird would not approve of that. Totally. So I cold email him to like politely tell him about the typo. He emails me back and says, thanks. And I was like, oh, I'm in. Yeah. I, all, <laughs> all normal conventions aside, I like literally flipped into an alternate dimension and became audacious, which has never been my default setting up to this point. I started emailing him back. I started hustling like a little, like as if I had every skill in the world that he would want. I spent my whole <sighs> spring break making a, teaching myself Photoshop and making a PDF storybook, including pictures of him and me as to why he should hire me. Like I have never done anything like this in oh my, my life. Oh my gosh, I love this I story. literally became a new person overnight and like a fire when people say like a fire was lit in me yeah I didn't sleep for a week you were like manic about like it one normal week of yours where you wake up in the middle of yeah. the night that was me for one week I became manic essentially yeah obsessively feverishly was like I'm gonna find oh out oh my gosh I love it and lo and behold a couple weeks later he called me which of course was a true meltdown fangirl moment at the time and we chatted for a little bit and then I, the timing wise, it was probably another month before he offered to pay me to do something, but I was like, I'm, it's happening. It's happening. Yeah. So I somehow cobbled together some like terrible senior project to like wrap up this, like just no effort left in me. My sweet professor, I remember her review with me. She just kind of looked at me like she knew she was like, you're done. She was like, so I was thinking we could maybe give this like a B plus. And I was like, that's so generous. Thank you. Yes. Like, <laughs> she's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I think I'm going to podcast it. I don't even remember yeah. what I said to her, but like she knew. Oh my gosh. So the day I finished technically finished design school, I had also planned that to be my very last day of work at the insurance company. And I also had it be the very last day at my internship at Neiman Marcus. So it was a full sweep. Amazing. The only thing I had any kind of guarantee of making money was this one month gig from this podcast host, Lewis, who had hired me, paying me $10 an hour to design some slide decks for him. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, done, easy, handled. This is going to be my new, like, this is the springboard to my new life. My cheeks are sore. <laughs> smiling so much it's i mean i've heard this story before I but know. i just i love it so it's much probably the moving moment of my life was this like two month period so when you walk out of the office on my last day of school on my last day of my internship like truly metaphorically like you know a choir of angels singing around me deleting my business email mm. off my phone like a real 
like a purging, purging, kind of, triumphant. Yeah. And then I promptly went to therapy because yeah. that was also just to skip over a big part of my life. There was plenty of like emotional chaos going on internally that I had no tools to deal with. Yeah. So I like the next week start going to therapy, do a 30 day yoga practice, essentially sit on my couch and stare out the window for a whole summer. Daydreaming. Daydreaming, truly. And making slide decks for Lewis. And at the end of the summer, he offered to hire me to edit his podcast. Did I have any of those skills? No, I did not. It didn't matter. He was like, hmm, You're she's hungry. Sh- she'll figure, she'll it, figure out. it out. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely. I negotiated for $20 <laughs> an hour. <laughs> and I'm like, I can technically live off of this. Yeah. And he was based in Los Angeles. And he was like, have you ever thought about moving to California? And I was like, why not? No, but I had I'll be technically, there next week. <laughs> essentially, yeah. I had technically visited many times because I had been dating a guy long distance who lived out there. So I had actually been to LA multiple times. It wasn't a total uh, like wild card, but I mean, when I say full life rehaul, we, we went down to the studs. Yeah. Like between therapy, the the move to LA, which you know, it took a few months for me to like finish up my lease, sort my things, get out to LA. I moved out there Valentine's Day 2015. This was like a complete dismantling of my old identity, a real fire crucible and rebirth that happened in Los Angeles. So I get to LA. I'm technically the editor of this show. I'm learning everything on the job. I'm working for a personal brand, which is about as opposite of corporate as you can get. I'm suddenly living in West Hollywood. I'm immersed in the world of like self-development and I'm going to workshops. I've got coaches. I'm like meeting celebrities at work. I'm producing this show. I'm learning about like social media and book launches and events and like how million dollar deals go down in like people's condos over coffee. I'm like brushing shoulders. Like it is a firestorm for the next four years. And my guess is it's a big clue that you weren't burned out from that. Right. It's such a good point. I had so much energy yeah. because of the shift I made. Yeah. It, I was not sleeping very much. I'll be clear. Like it wasn't like I suddenly had a posh life. I was barely. And when I say barely, barely making ends meet like LA is an expensive city. I'd put all my money into design school. Yeah. There was no cushion. There was no yeah. safety net. There's yeah. no savings. I was freelancing. Essentially. It wasn't like I was an employee of this guy. I was just a, technically a contractor who was only working for him. Yeah. So there was no kind of stability. There was no kind of guarantees. I had no idea what I was doing yeah. as a freelancer. And that was my next four years. I just want to say like, I, I have something in my eye. That's not the thing I want to say. Um, but that's why my face is doing this thing that no one who's <laughs> listening can see. Um, <laughs> I can see. Christine can see it. Um, I, I want to say, I, when, when people, when I'm talking with young people or even people my age who say this thing that I hate so much, which is like, I would have done music if, or I would have done art if there's like very, there's fewer things in the world that like, I find more like offensive than that. I mean, personally, there's things in the world that I find more offensive, but like things that happen to me, there's very little that I find more bothersome than that. But you know, when people talk about this, this thing of like, is it easy? Is it hard? this is where this lives. Like, you know, there maybe are reasons why sitting in a cubicle is easier than being a freelance, whatever. But like, is it easier? No, because it will like 
take everything you have. Uh, but when you're doing something, if you're the type of person who maybe has this sense, like I want to be in a creative field, it will be the hardest thing you've ever done, but it will be the kind of hard where it gives you back enough that you have steam. That was very well said. I don't even need to rephrase it because that's the truth. Yeah. And I'm living proof. The years I lived in LA were the hardest, most challenging, most like gut-wrenching, soul-shaking, like entire life going to zero and being rebuilt, which sounds dramatic, but is true. I also survived just fine to tell the tale. Yeah. I'm better for it. I was all I would also say there was some of the happiest years of my life to date. I was introduced to people and opportunities that literally changed my entire worldview in such a profound way that I accessed whole new stores of energy, creativity, and possibility that were never going to be available to me if I had stayed in a lifestyle and career that wasn't a good fit. So the, the firestorm and the drama of the crucible may sound intimidating, but it was like I was given the tools to weather the storm Mm -hmm. and the result was my dream life on a large point. So yeah, there's a price, but it wasn't like I was left all by myself to try and create, you know, survivability with the same tools I'd had when I was working corporate. Yeah. I got new tools. Right. And it's not to say that like whatever kind of, you know, harder path you take, um, it won't change, you know, or there won't be some point at which that new thing is like no longer the thing. And then you do a new thing. But I think my point is just like, don't make a decision because it's like on paper, easier or harder, make a decision based on like, can I say something about that too? That just came to me. It's okay if you choose a safe or stable, whatever we want. We're saying corporate, but what we mean is safe and stable. Yeah. If you need to choose that for a few years for your own like mental well-being, yeah. do it. But just know that the time will come when that's no longer acceptable to you. Mm-hmm. So it's it's totally fine if you need to do that for a little bit, maybe because of external pressure, um, for whatever reason. Yeah. Maybe you decide to do that for a bit. Fine. Just please don't deceive yourself that if you're actually better built for a creative career, like the need and the urge and the desire will come calling Mm -hmm. and it'll get louder and louder and louder until you have to pay attention to it. Yeah. So just know that Mm -hmm. there's like a a clock ticking. If you decide to go the safe and stable route for a bit, that's fine, but it will become unsustainable at a certain point, whether it's mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually. Yeah. Well, and I think there is a flip side that I've seen a lot, you know, because all the people that I knew in my youth were, had made the decision to be professional musicians, my youth, my early twenties. Um, and I've also seen it happen where some people are the types of creatives where they, they need to not mix it with their money and their creativity is best served by them having kind of a boring, leave it at work nine to five that takes very little creative energy from them so that in their like off hours, they can be very creative. So, I mean, I think either, I mean, this easy, hard thing, it's like, you know, for someone who's that kind of a creative, it might look easy to do the like creative job. Cause it's like, I'm so good at this, but like trying to make that your job makes you kind of bad at it. 
I 100% agree. I'm so grateful you clarified that because I'm the first person to also say you shouldn't rely on your creativity to make you income. And that's really a line straight from Liz Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love. My favorite book I've read on creativity thus far is her Big Magic. Big Magic. But she speaks about this so eloquently that she never relied on her writing to pay her the bills. She always made a contract with her creative muse as she says, I will pay the bills. I'll do the jobs if you'll always come to me with creative ideas. Yeah. And I'm the biggest believer that many, many, many people, myself included, are better served by having their income attached to something they're good at that provides an income that doesn't drain too much out of them that then allows them to put their very best creative energy into non-paid work. Mm -hmm. There's a few unicorns, like to your point, where it works for the money to be aligned with the creative expression. And then there's some people who it's better to have complete 100% separation. Mm -hmm. I think the majority probably of us creatives are in the middle ground. So I'm currently being paid by people of influence to make their podcasts. It's associated with creativity, but actually it's pretty technical and it's a lot of consulting and business. So I'm in a close enough field now that I'm getting paid good money to do something that's of value, that's creative, but not super creative. Yeah. I, I, I refer to this casually as lowercase a art and uppercase art. That's perfect. I do lowercase a art right now for a living and it's great. It works so well for me. I genuinely enjoy it. If I never produced another podcast in my life, I'd be fine. Like no part of me would die. I'd be like, that was a great chapter. I loved it. Good to go. There are other parts of me creatively that would die if I stopped doing them. But those parts of me are not associated with income right now. Yeah. So, okay. So after a little while you left LA because you no longer wanted to be kind of like under someone else's thing, you want to do your own thing. Is there any, I mean, is that is there more nuance you feel like we need to say? I'll just say, I mean, that is true. I realized on a very spiritual level. And when I say spiritual, I, whatever that speaks to you, intuition, gut feeling, you know, emotional well-being. I knew the chapter was coming to a close and that it was perfectly complete. Yeah. Like what you needed from the city and this job is complete and it's time for you to evolve to the next phase. And that was really a beautiful experience because I had no anxiety about it, which is pretty rare, I would say, for most major career transitions. So it was an incredible chapter. I learned so much. And the biggest blessing of that time was I gained a whole new skill set that people will pay me for. Yeah. So that the really arduous process of working, you know, very unorthodox hours in a very unorthodox job was not only that I could live in LA for four years, but that I developed a skill set that now allows me to run my own business. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I think we should just talk about identity stuff now. Is that okay with you? I love identity. Okay. So this is the, this is the thing that I have a hard time asking people about because I don't know. I don't have, I haven't figured out the right way to pose the question that it doesn't like trigger weird things for people, but I, surmise that we have as creatives and like just frankly as people but like especially as creatives um the podcast is called artifice because i i think no matter what there's a there's some kind of a relationship between yourself and like the art that you make um i think for some people it's this kind of thing where like they channel a specific version of themselves to make this art or to perform this art for some people 
it's maybe like kind of separate. It's almost like, uh, like the person that they are when they're doing the art, they cannot even be when they're not. Um, sometimes I think it's like very aligned. It's like one informs the other. Um, but I think just by the nature of the fact that like our art is consumable, there must be something, some conversation we're having internally about what we're doing. So I, I, I don't know how to ask it, but I, I want to just know, like, how do you feel about the relationship between like yourself and the stuff you make? How does it work? Mm, I love that. I, I do think about this often. I read a lot about it because I'm super interested in what other creatives have to say. I think it's a great conversation. I am definitely a recovering perfectionist. Mm-hmm. I know many people relate, so I'm not going to go into what that means. But for a very long time, I thought that my worth was based on my results. So if my results weren't perfect, that was a direct reflection of my worth. And over the last few years, I've been working very hard to unpack that um, fallacy and reestablish a sense of worth independent from my results. So when I'm looking at the results of my creative expression, for me right now, oftentimes that looks like podcasting, but it could also include design because I end up doing kind of a lot of both in my work. There is always room for improvement and there's an immaturity to it. I've technically only been in my current creative field of podcasting for five years, essentially like an infant in my industry. Mm. The fact that podcasting is a new medium means I'm actually a veteran, but on any other scale, I would be an infant still. Right. Yeah. Weirdly in the world of podcasting, I'm like a veteran expert, but truthfully anywhere else I would be considered like a novice. So daily I'm looking at my work and critically analyzing it as immature I constantly, even when I'm working on my clients' shows, I'm like, that could have been better, that could have been better, that's not good enough. Like, as a truly professional critical of my own work, I'm like, oh, there is miles for improvement here. What's been really profound about this practice that I call worthful living, which is my own kind of um, mantle I've put on myself, where I disconnect my worth from my results, one of the blessings of that is giving me the ability to critically look at my work, see the needs for improvement and be okay with it, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, needless to say years of therapy and hard work have been put into that. So when I think about the re- kind of the juxtaposition or the relationship between myself and my creative work, I, the really the word that comes to mind is grace. Mm. I have learned grace to honor whatever I'm able to create in the moment and know that was my best in that moment. And I find a lot of value in that because when I look at like my creative body of work, I think of it as a constantly evolving Mm -hmm. offering that I'll do until I die. Right. So I don't get so much hung up on like the immaturity of it right now or the flaws or the like miles to go before it's anything to like shout from the skies. Mm -hmm. And I think much more about, did I create something that forwarded me today or forwarded someone else? Like, did I improve it in any way? Yeah. And that to me is grace. Yeah. I, I like this idea. I mean, I'm, I'm having kind of a thought that I'm not sure how to put into words right in this moment, but you know, when we look at our past work and we look at our current work and, you know, kind of see it changing, I think there's something weird where we have a harder time seeing ourselves change. And because your work is, 
you know, I don't know that it's always a reflection of who you are, but it definitely is. It's related somehow. Like it, it, I think it's an expression, but not a complete one. Yeah. Or like, I think even for some people, it's totally different. Like their work is very vastly different from like the self they are, which is maybe for some people kind of like the thing it's like this arm that is like my art is like this weird thing of me that like I can't do any other way. And when you meet me, it's like totally different. You know, I think yes. that that is a thing. So whatever the relationship between the stuff you make and who you are, whatever that may be, whether it's like a lot the same, very different, you know, pretty close, but like a little nuanced, um, yourself and the stuff you make are going to change. And I guess maybe like part of the reason why I'm interested in this question is like, I think sometimes we, we feel like we have to do one before the other. Like you change yourself and then you change your work or you change your work and then you're allowed to like assume a different identity. Does that make sense? Like as your work elevates, you can feel more elevated or. Wow. Yes. Okay. I'm just not like wrapping my head around this because I've went right when you said that I realized I've always believed you change yourself before you change your work. Mm. But I don't know that that's true now that you've kind of presented the two options. Right when you said it, I was like, oh, I totally believe you well, change yourself. Because wasn't like going to get your degree. That's like changing your work before you, ch- you know, totally. like you're, you're like, let me do this thing in order to prove that I am this thing. Totally. So I don't know. I mean, like I said, I don't know how to ask this question because it's too broad. Yeah. And because like there's no way. But I, I think we all are thinking about it whether or not we're thinking about it. And I just like to know, like, how do you deal with your identity stuff as it reflects upon your art or vice versa? Okay. I'm really excited about this because I have experienced some pretty big identity transformations, especially in the last five years. So when I look at my work, which is also dramatically changed in the last five years, it, it looks like it parallels my identity transformation. Mm-hmm. And yet I know for a fact they're totally yeah. on their own. Like, of course they've impacted each other, but truthfully, like my personal identity transformation has been in its own universe mm-hmm. from my work. And when I think about like, if my identity's changing, will my work change? Or if my work changes, will my identity change? Yes, but maybe the value to the question is saying, what am I learning from the changes? Mm-hmm. Like, mm. who cares the chicken before the egg? Yeah. What is there to learn? Which is kind of where I always come back to, like, yeah. I'm going to keep evolving my whole life. I'll be so different in five years from now than I am today. And obviously yeah. my work, like, please let it be different than yeah. it is today. So that's a guarantee. But I think if I'm oblivious to the lessons I'm learning, then mm-hmm. it was all for nothing. I think that's why I care about this too. And that's why it's hard to ask the question because it's like, I don't actually care no. what the answer is. It doesn't is. actually matter. I just want to know like, what are you, what are you dealing, what are you working through? What are you dealing right. with? What do you observe? Like as the, ins- as the only insider to your life, yeah. what do you observe that like on the outside we wouldn't, we wouldn't guess or we wouldn't know? Um, Yeah. I'll say this, and this is like super specific to my chosen creative medium, which right now is podcasting. So just to be clear, I professionally produce podcasts for people of influence, but 
personally for fun, I have my own podcast. And of course I listen to other shows. So when I'm speaking about my creative work, I'm going to speak specifically into my own podcast right now for this comment. I've been hosting my show for about 18 months coming up in two years. And it's, it's all about self-worth and I have conversations with people and I have um, episodes where I just share my own thoughts. So over the last 18 months as a show host and a content creator, I have been evolving a ton personally, and my work has been evolving. If you listen to my first episode versus my episodes now, there's a big difference. Mm. And something that I've literally just even recently been noticing is my relationship to my personal transformation is really solid. Like I've been in deep personal transformation for about five years now. It's a very it's comfortably uncomfortable. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of like curiosity about that right now. Like I'm in a really good rhythm of like evolution, growth, learning, blah, blah, blah. But my creative work right now is super interesting to mm. me because kind of for the first time in my life, I've given myself permission to have a creative outlet that feels very authentic and genuine mm. to me. It's literally me, my voice, my thoughts yeah. being recorded, putting out into the world, getting feedback, Instagramming about it, you know, talking about it publicly. So my creative work right now is in this period of evolution that's like super fascinating to me because I, in a a big way, feel like it's the first time I've really let myself be completely creative in a medium that I'm interested in. And what I've been learning is the more I practice my creative expression, the closer I'm getting to my own sort of genius, Mm -hmm. which is really elemental. I I think any creative relates to this, but at 32, I am just starting to experience that. Oh my gosh, I think I'm getting closer to the thing. And when, when I say the thing, I mean the unique contribution I have to offer the world of value, hopefully. Um, so right now I'm, kind of hyper-focused on this really fun playground of creative work called podcasting. Personally, I'm just like in this blissful chapter of like, not autopilot, but like easy breezy. Yeah. The last year of my life since leaving LA and kind of shifting into my own business and, you know, starting to date my boyfriend has just been like bliss by and large. Yeah. Just like easy breezy. Except for the three hour fight about whether Except or not to buy plane tickets. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those are just, I'm yeah. just kidding. Like those are good for me <laughs> it's too. It's part of it. It's part of it. So the, the personal evolution right now is kind of on like easy street, yeah. which is really lovely. Yeah. And I know that's not going to last forever, but my creative expression is like, it's like a birthing that's yeah, happening. In like a beautiful tumult. In a beautiful tumult. And like, I don't fully know where yeah, it's headed. It's perfect. Something's happening. So I will like submit that as evidence that I don't think they always parallel each other. Yeah. And I think there's seasons for each. Totally. And like, I think this, I think part of my issue is this word artifice creeps people out because they're like, I am not artificial. But that's not what I mean. Like, I think artifice, like if you look at like the definition of that word, there's art in that, you know, and it's, it's a, it's, it's a word that implies craft and it's a word that implies strategy and it kind of hasn't, you know, it can have a negative connotation. I just like it because it has the word art in it and it's fun. It's such a cool word. I like it, but, um, but I think it, it red, it gets red flaggy for people because we want, we want authenticity or I think we also are comfortable with like a complete lack of authenticity if it's like a costume or a persona and it's like transparently so. 
Um, but I just know that like this thing you're talking about is real. I know that it is like, and it, it, I think sometimes it almost necessarily must be because, you know, it's hard to have chaos everywhere or like, you know, you're, you're figuring the, the creative process kind of helps you to have some light bulbs about what's going on with yourself or vice versa. And it's not to say that like for any one of us, it's always going to be the same, but like, I doubt that it's ever totally parallel for anyone. No. So, um, so yeah, thank you. I, I like oh, appreciate yeah. that. Total, total validation on that point. I think that's, I think that's the perfect answer. And yeah, I mean, I'm so about everyone's answers being different, which makes the question really weird. So if you, if anyone, <laughs> anyone listening, Christine, anyone has thoughts about, Hey Emily, maybe ask the question this way. Oh my gosh, please, please tell me. Um, I kind of love that you're in a creative exploration of how to ask the question. I, like it'll be fun for you to look back a year from now and figure out how you've yeah. evolved. Well, what I've been doing is like lately, like maybe the last five or six episodes, I've just been saying, I don't know how to ask this question. So please try not to like, like let me project anything onto you. Let me talk all around the question and then you tell me what's what that's you a think discovery it is. process. You'll yeah. get, you're gonna get there. I hope so. Um, okay. I think we're done. So I have, I have two like little wrap up things. The question that I always ask everyone is what's your dream collaboration? Okay. This is total gut reaction because <laughs> I am multi-passionate. There's so Perfect. many people. The person that came to mind is Christina Tosi, the pastry chef who created Milk Bar. Okay. I Love can't it. explain it fully. I've recently kinship. started following her and her content and I love her aura. I'm not even like a big sweets person, the way she makes sweets. I just think she as a creative is phenomenal. She's doing something for I you. I really love the way that she expresses. Okay. I love that. And then finally, where can we find you on the internet and where can we find your things? Okay. I'm worthful Christine on every platform, but really Instagram's the only place I hang out. Worthful Christine Worthful Project is my podcast, so you can go to worthfulproject.com slash any podcast platform you listen. It'll be on there. Those is all, that's all you really need to know. That's I great. mean, professionally, I have a site, but if you want to find me, just go to Instagram. And there may be a, a reality show in your future. <laughs> oh my gosh, I forgot we talked about this. Technically, I have applied to be on a reality TV show called Meal Makeover, in which home chefs are brought in to show how they remake leftovers. I won't discover if I've been cast for probably another month. To be honest, I've forgotten that I submitted to it. So it will be a surprise to me. If you do get accepted for it, this will probably come out like right around that time. So let me know. I will. I I can let the listeners know either in either direction. So if you get it, they'll know to be looking for you. And if not, then like, you know, perfect. We'll send it into the air. It will be a have been a really fun home project that I did one time when I filmed (laughs) myself for the submission video. Well, I'm excited that you did that either way. Okay, Christine. Thank you so much for being on my podcast and for just like being in my life too. I just, it's such a complete joy that our paths have like recrossed again. It's the best thing. I completely agree. And this was absolutely the most fun I could have had today. Yay. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our music is by Jerem Hansen and artwork by Sarah Keel. 
If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.